Well, thank you once again for joining me as we continue our study of the book of Genesis. In our last episode, we covered the first nine verses of chapter 19, which saw the two angels enter the city of Sodom on their mission to destroy the city. And we left off with the men of Sodom coming to Lot's home, demanding Lot bring out his two guests so that they could participate in homosexual gang rape against his guest. And as we discussed, Lot then offered up his two daughters instead. And we mentioned two or three possible explanations as to what that may have been all about. And we ended our last episode with the men of Sodom ignoring Lot's request to not commit this evil act and even threatening to do worse to him if he didn't get out of the way. And we see then the men of Sodom pushing in on Lot, pressing near to break down the door of his home in order to get to his guests. Which brings us now to verse 10. Verse 10 and 11 read, But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Now remember, the, quote, men here are actually the two angels, which is confirmed by verse 11, where it says that they struck the men of Sodom with blindness. And of course, ordinary men would not be able to do that. Speaking of blindness, the normal Hebrew word for what you and I would consider blindness, meaning that you're not able to see, is the word iver. The Hebrew word used for blindness here, though, is sanbarim, and it's a different word. And it means to dazzle or to deceive, suggesting that they were temporarily blinded by a sudden, immobilizing, blazing light. Notice also, who were the men at the door? It says both small and great. Remember, in the last episode, we discussed that it was both young and old who were seeking to do evil to Lot's guests. Even further, again, making the case and illustrating just how determined they were to commit this terrible evil. It says that even after they were struck with blindness, they were still determined to break down the door and get to Lot's guests. So much so that even in their blinded state, they continued groping for the door until they wore themselves out. I mean, it literally conjures up the image of some wounded animal that just absolutely will not quit and will not give up until there is absolutely no physical strength left at all. Verses 12 through 14 read, Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting, to be joking. And so the angels here ask Lot who else he has in the city, what other family members he has living in the city. They're giving Lot an opportunity to get out of the city. Why? Because, as they tell him, they're about to destroy the city. And again, why are they going to destroy the city? Well, we don't have to wonder. They tell us. Because the outcry against them before God has become so great that God has dispatched them to destroy the city. It's interesting that God sends two angels. I mean, one would have been enough. Remember, Angels are incredibly powerful, created beings. I mean, elsewhere in scripture, 
One angel killed all the firstborn in Egypt. One angel killed 185,000 Syrian soldiers one night after dinner. And one angel would have been enough here. So why send two? Well, maybe one reason is so that two witnesses could be established. Later on, we'll see that God institutes the penalty of capital punishment, but that it requires two credible witnesses. The fate of the city was still to be determined, at least from man's perspective. And now, the two angels have witnessed firsthand the wickedness of the people of the city. Guilt is now established beyond all doubt by two credible witnesses. So Lot goes to his sons-in-law and warns them and tells them that they need to get out of the city because God's about to destroy the place. But notice their reaction. They thought he was joking, which tells us something about Lot's moral persuasion, that he didn't have an impact on his family. I mean, they didn't take him seriously. He had no moral persuasion. They apparently didn't view him as a leader. But it also tells us something about them. They had no sensitivity to the moral evil that surrounded them in the city. Verses 15 and 16 read, And as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. Now this is really telling, and honestly, it's quite amazing. I mean, even after what he has already seen, still Lot delayed. So much so that the two angels had to literally grab him and his wife and his two daughters and physically bring them out of the city. The angels had to coax him to leave six times. Six times. And the picture that is painted here is that they basically had to drag them out of the place, kicking and screaming. I mean, why in the world are they desiring to stay in such a morally corrupt place? They felt more secure inside the evil city with the evil people than they did outside of the city with God. Notice also that saving Lot and his family, getting them out of the city, was an act of mercy from God. Just as it was when God saved Noah and his family when he rescued Sarah from Pharaoh, and Lot when he was taken, and just as it is when God saves any of us. But before we're too hard on Lot and his family, maybe we should take a look in the mirror. I mean, how comfy are we with the world, with the sin in the world, with the moral evil and depravity in the world? How accustomed to it are we? I mean, how comfortable are we being surrounded by sin? I mean, do we even recognize it any longer? In other words, how much do we hate sin? You know, one of the things that I occasionally pray for is the ability to view sin as God sees it. To see sin in the same light that God sees it. And we know how God views it. He abhors it. He hates it. He is repulsed by it. And I'm afraid that in our world today, we become numb to an awful lot of it. To the point that it doesn't bother us the way that it should. I mean, maybe we think we're enlightened or hip, or maybe we think we're morally sophisticated. And when I think of that, I'm often reminded of Romans 1.22, which says, And in professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. But regardless of how we might justify our tolerance of evil, or turning a blind eye, or ignoring rampant sin, remember this, never underestimate man's ability to rationalize. 
But I believe one way that you can assess your walk with God is to take an account of how much sin bothers you, how much it affects you. And if it doesn't really bother you, then perhaps it's time to reevaluate your relationship with and your walk with God. Maybe it's time we evaluate how much we really believe what we claim to believe. Verses 17 through 22 read, And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your side, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And he said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. So just bringing Lot's wife and daughters outside of the city was not enough. They tell them to flee to the mountains. Do not look back. Do not stop anywhere in the plain. Go to the hills, lest you be swept away in the destruction. The angels are clearly telling them to not linger. But yet again, what is Lot's response? Even though he admits and he recognizes how gracious the angels have been towards him, he can't just do what they tell him to do. He has to ask for something else. Rather than flee to the mountains like he was instructed, he has to go to a nearby small town. It's just amazing. It just doesn't project a very appreciative attitude, does it? Well, I can tell you that the angels are definitely more patient than I would have been. But more importantly, Lot is pleading here with the angels to spare this smaller city that was included in the plan for destruction. He's basically arguing that since the city is small, it's not worth bothering with or destroying. And since it's small, its quantity of sin is less and therefore not worth even bothering with. Lot's argument here betrays a lack of faith in God's judgment. And it reveals a severely convoluted sense of righteousness and of sin and of justice. And it's a selfish plea for God to spare the small city so that he would have a place to live without regard to righteousness. And yet, knowing all of this, God's grace and mercy once again amazes. And again, it makes me wonder, I mean, even after God has done so much for us, has blessed us in so many ways, how often do we ask for more? What makes up the majority of our prayers? A list of things we would like God to do? A list of ways we want God to bless us even more? And not that there's anything wrong with any of that, but does that make up the majority of our prayer life? If so, we sound very much like Lot here. And that brings us now to the verses that we have been building towards over the last two or three episodes. Verses 23 through 29. And the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities, and all the valley, and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife, behind him, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that... 
When God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So notice first that God waits until Lot enters Zoar before the destruction begins. I mean, it really is amazing. You know, take your time, Lot. No hurry. Waiting on you. And then in verse 24, it says, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And so we see, finally, that the cities were destroyed. Notice that it says twice in this one verse, in verse 24, that it was the Lord who rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah. It was the Lord who rained down sulfur and fire. Now, people have tried to figure out exactly how God did this, or is there a scientific, natural explanation to this event? Was it an earthquake? Was it a fire? Was it a small meteorite strike? I mean, what's going on here? With the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, there is an immediate cause and an ultimate cause. The immediate cause was sulfur and fire. The ultimate cause was God. Sulfur and fire were the instruments, the mechanisms that God chose to use. Now, for those who seek some sort of scientific explanation, understanding that God is the ultimate cause, one of the possible explanations is an earthquake. And you might be surprised to hear that fire and lightning can actually occur with earthquakes. And knowing that the area was full of bitumen, this bitumen could have been ignited by that lightning, as well as the gases that are produced with earthquakes. Another possibility that one might think of naturally is a volcanic eruption. However, geologists have basically ruled out the possibility of a volcanic eruption in that area. Keep in mind, too, that Scripture says God rained down fire from heaven. And so it seems as though that's the direction the fire and the sulfur and the burning stone, which is the Latin word for sulfur, were coming from. In other words, from above. An earthquake explanation would seem to have that destruction coming more from below. I think it's very interesting. In September of 2021, the Smithsonian published a very interesting article. And in that article, they describe an ancient city around the year 1650 BC that was completely destroyed by, now get this, an exploding comet or meteor. And they're describing the ancient city of Tal el-Hammam. At the time of its destruction, archaeologists say it was the largest of three major cities in the area. And the researchers concluded that warfare, a fire, a volcanic eruption, or an earthquake were unlikely explanations because those events could not have produced the intense heat that caused the melting that is recorded at the scene. And also, because experts failed to find a crater at the site, they attributed the damage to an airburst created when a meteor or a comet traveled through the atmosphere at high speed, and it would have exploded about two and a half miles above the city in a blast that, get this, was a thousand times more powerful than the atomic bomb used at Hiroshima. The article says that air temperatures would rapidly have risen above 3,600 degrees Fahrenheit. Clothing and wood immediately would have burst into flames. Swords, spears, mud bricks, pottery would have began to melt. And almost immediately, the entire city was on fire. Seconds after the blast, a shockwave would have ripped through the city at a speed of over 700 miles per hour. The city's buildings were reduced to foundations and rubble. None of the 8,000 people or any of the animals within the city would have survived. 
because their bodies were torn apart and their bones would have been blasted into small fragments. Now, this doesn't prove that this ancient city is the actual Sodom or Gomorrah. The timing seems to even be a little off, but it does offer us a possible answer as to how God destroyed them. But remember, the how is never as important as the why. Now shifting gears just a bit, remember verse 26 where it says, But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And that's interesting. It's captured the imagination of many throughout time. She looks back, probably longing to return from the city that she was begrudgingly leaving. And because of that, she experiences the same fate as the city that she identifies with. One thing I find very interesting is that none other than the great Roman Jewish historian Josephus claims to have seen this pillar of salt in his day. Not only that, but Clement of Rome, who lived about the same time as Josephus, he became the leader in the church after Peter and Paul were killed. He was the fourth bishop of Rome. He also claims to have seen it. And then, about 50 years later, early church father Irenaeus also claimed that it was still standing. But more importantly is the theological significance and the lesson that we learn from Lot's wife. The angels instructed them to not look back. In Luke chapter 9 we read, Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And the lesson there and in the preceding verses was that there is a cost to following Jesus. If you're going to truly follow Jesus, you're all in. You can't hold on to Jesus with one hand and hold on to the world with the other. It doesn't work like that. And this is sort of the picture that we see with Lot's wife here. She's looking back, not fully committed. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus says something interesting. He is comparing the destruction of Sodom with the coming of the kingdom of God. And part of what he says is, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planning and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Now these are the words of Jesus, and some people interpret this as Jesus implying that Lot's wife didn't just merely look back, but that she actually went back. She returned to the city, and in doing so, disobeyed what the angels commanded her not to do. And also in doing, she suffered the same fate as the others in the city. Verses 27 through 29 read, And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that, when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham, and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. And so, these verses serve to remind us of the earlier conversation Abraham had with God. Remember, Abraham had gotten God all the way down to asking, if, if there are ten righteous people in the city, would you still destroy the city? And God had answered Abraham, for the sake of the ten, he would not destroy the city. 
And so Abraham gets up early in the morning. He goes to his vantage point and he looks out over Sodom and Gomorrah to learn the outcome. And upon seeing the destruction and the smoke rising from the cities, what he learns is that Sodom didn't even have 10 righteous people living in it. You know, this story of Sodom and Gomorrah is truly a sad story. It's sad that the cities are completely destroyed. It's sad that people can become that depraved and that wicked. Now, you and I can't change what happened, but what we can do is try and learn from it. And what we need to learn and understand, I think, are a couple of things here. First, is that God hates sin. And his perfect justice demands and requires that he punishes sin. And the Bible teaches in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. Second, God will not destroy the righteous along with the wicked. We will all be judged by God when we die. And you will either be found righteous or guilty. If you're guilty, the penalty is pretty steep. It's eternal separation from God in hell. If you're judged to be righteous... You get to be on the home team, so to speak, with God in heaven for all eternity. And so like I mentioned in the last episode, I believe, the only question is, how can you be judged as being righteous? The answer is, well, on your own, you can't, period. Christianity is not like all other religions where at the end of your life, your good deeds are weighed against your bad deeds. And as long as your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then you get in. Sorry. It doesn't work like that. That's a works-based religion mentality. But the Bible teaches that it's not by your works that you are saved. It's by your belief and your trust in Christ. And then his righteousness is imputed to you. I mean, that's why Jesus came in the first place. To pay your price because you couldn't do it on your own. And so if you believe in Christ, you trust in him as Lord and Savior, then his righteousness is imputed to you. So that God sees you as being righteous. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tell us, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And the last lesson here I think is found in Lot's hesitancy to leave Sodom. And in his wife's looking back or actually returning to the city. Desiring to hold on to the world she was leaving. Look, As I said before, this whole God thing, this following Jesus, it's not a halfway thing. You're either all in or you're not in at all. Once you make the decision, don't look back. Keep your heart focused on God. Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ and don't look back. Sodom and Gomorrah is a stark reminder of the harsh realities of sin, of living apart from God and outside of his will for our lives and just how wicked we have the capacity to become. It's also a very sobering reminder of just how much God hates sin. And it is honestly, in this modern age we live in, it's sometimes hard for us to relate to and fully understand this level of destruction. It's hard to sort through. This is not easy stuff here. But the best chance you have is to stay close to God and get to know Him better. But that doesn't just happen by accident. Maybe consider getting off your phone for a few minutes each day. Get out from in front of the TV for a while and spend a little more time in prayer and in His Word each day. It will make a big difference in how you view the world and how you walk through the inevitable difficulties and challenges of life that we all face. And I believe it's the only way 
to find lasting peace in your life. Looking for the shade where the trees have died. Trying to find my way to the peace inside. Until I'm, until I'm home. Oh, 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 oh. Until I'm, until I'm home. Walking down this road till I'm home